Uh, church families, you go to the Word. Let me just ask you this question. Uh, why are you confident before God today? Or maybe uh, we should back up and say, are you confident before God today? And if you say, yes, I'm confident, why? Are you confident God hears your prayers? Are you confident that God sees you? Are you confident that uh, when you sit down and you open up your Bible and, and you meet with the Lord, are you confident he is there with you? Or, or, or maybe let me put it another way. Are you confident that God accepts you? And if you are, why? Because the answer to those two questions not only determines whether or not you and I know the Lord, but will determine inside of that relationship whether or not we really walk knowing the Lord. And we come to a passage today that it'd be easy to either gloss over or easy to just walk through it and define a bunch of terms and make a big theological message out of it because the reality is many times inside of the American church, we prefer one of two kinds of sermons, preferably if they can go together, we like that. And that is this, we like sermons that make us feel good. No one wants to come to church and leave feeling beat up. We like sermons that end with giving us something tangible we can go do. And there's nothing wrong with a sermon bringing encouragement and making you, you, you and, and me feeling good. There's nothing wrong with a sermon uh, giving us something tangible to go do. But if our doing flows out of the wrong place, it's going to be a train wreck. And so I want to walk slowly through our passage today because we're prone to look behind and not see this, uh, see these passages that deal not so much with what we are to do, but with what we are to believe, which will determine the nature of what we do. So if you've got your Bibles, let me invite you to open up to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. We've moved through, we finished chapter 2 a couple weeks ago, and we come now to chapter 3, where Paul writes and he says this, he says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Now, when he says finally, he's not all of a sudden coming to the end. Really, what he's saying is, now let's get to the matter at hand. Let's get to that which, which is still left for us to address. And he commands them in doing so, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Stop and make that an intentional moment to take the eyes of our heart, the eyes of our faith, and, and in awe and wonder, gaze and meditate upon all that Jesus is and, and what he's done. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things is, is no, again, is, is no trouble to me. It's not causing me pause or hesitation or annoying me. And it's a safeguard for you. It's, it's a, a rock of, of sturdiness. It's a place of safety and protection for me to write to you again. And so what are these things? Well, look what he says here in verse 2. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the mutilators. For we are the true circumcision who worship or serve in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. He says, he says church family, it's, it's not a trouble. It's not causing me any kind of damage or pain to write this to you again. And, and what is he saying? He says, beware. Beware. And he repeats it three times. Beware. Be on the lookout. Be on the guard. Have your eyes open to see and he names, he uses three distinct terms here. Beware of the dogs. 
Now, I know inevitably there's probably some dog lovers in the room, and in no way am I trying to paint the dogs you love in a bad light, but I do want you to understand for Paul, as a, as a Jewish man writing in the first century, what dogs would have meant. Dogs were considered to be the most despised and miserable of all creatures. In the Old Testament law, they were considered an unclean animal. They were, they, they were miserable because they ate everything. They ate dead animals. They ate off human corpses. They ate their own vomit. This, this is, uh, they would go around without a home and without an owner, feeding, running on the streets. And this was a term commonly used by the Jews to, to describe Gentiles. It says, beware of the dogs, beware of these filthy, dirty, and clean creatures, beware of the evil workers, those whose works are not for good, but those whose works produce evil. Beware of, and your Bible may say like mine, the false circumcision. Well, actually, it's not the word for circumcision. It's a play on the word. The Greek word for, for circumcision would be the word peritome. This is the word katatome which is actually the word for mutilators, those who mutilate and destroy their flesh. He says, beware of these people. Now, who are these people? Well, especially once you get to that last term there, the, the false circumcision, the mutilators, it's most likely that the group of people Paul is writing to are a group of people we would call the Judaizers. And these are a group of individuals who, who would say, yes, come to faith in Christ. Christ is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. His death and his resurrection is all true. And, and you need to place faith in Christ. Plus, you need to be circumcised if you're a male. Plus, you need to make sure to observe the sacrificial law. Plus, 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 plus. And they would add on all of these other aspects of Old Testament law, rather than seeing them fulfilled in Christ, they would see Christ as the Messiah, but we must also do all of these things in order to have a relationship with Christ. I mean, feel the sting of his rebuke here. He is calling Judaizers, most likely Jewish believers who've, who've misunderstood the nature of the gospel and grace, he's calling them dogs. They who would say our, our relationship with God is to do good works, he's saying they work evil. They who would claim to be, be the true circumcision, he says they are mutilators because they are claiming something with regard to a righteousness that is not true, as we'll come to see. He says, beware of them. Beware of what they teach. Beware of what they are promoting. For we, referring to, to himself, to, to the church there in Philippi, to those who are in Christ, for we are the real circumcision. So we are the real circumcision. And there's three things that, def that define us. We are those who, who worship or serve. It, it's a term that described the, the Levitical service of the priests in the temple. So when you, when you're, if your Bible reads worship, don't just think we are those who worship. You know, I stand, I stand, and I be. That's not what it's referring to. It's actually a much better definition of worship because what it's saying is that life which is lived in complete service to God is worship. We are those who, who live in this way, but, but do so in the Spirit, meaning by the power of the Holy Spirit, filled with the Spirit, driven by the Spirit, enabled by the Spirit. We are those who live by the Spirit of God. 
We're not just those who who live and worship and serve in the Spirit of God, but our boast, our glory, our confidence is in Christ Jesus alone. And inversely from that, who place no confidence in the flesh. And by flesh, we don't necessarily mean uh, that sinful part of us, like Paul will sometimes use flesh. But by flesh, we mean by those works that are driven by our, our own humanity, which is broken. He says, we don't place any confidence there. But look what he says. He says, but in verse 4, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone has a mind to put on confidence in the flesh, I far more. Here's what he says. He says, okay, but for the sake of argument, if, if we want to talk about having confidence before God on the basis of what is done in our flesh, let's go there because I'll win. That's what he says. And he's going to lay out his argument. Look at what he says. He says, if anyone has, uh, has, has desires to go there, I far more circumcise the eighth day of, of, of the, the uh, race of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to my zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is found in the law, from the law, I am blameless." What he does is, is he gives a list. He gives a list of two things. He gives boasts of status and boasts of achievement. When he says status, look, he says, I am circumcised the eighth day. See, under the Jewish law, uh, if, if you were circumcised correctly as a little boy, it would be when your parents brought you and circumcised you on the eighth day after your birth. That was the right, that was the best, that was the top. If you, if you weren't in there, so for any of these Gentile believers who would submit to these teachings of the Judaizers, uh, that's great you're circumcised, but it's not as good as my circumcision because it, it didn't match up to the, the best of the law. It says of the nation of Israel. Your Bible may say the people of Israel, but that word there, it's the word genos, it means of the race, meaning Paul is ethnically a Jew. He is by blood and DNA a Jew. The best a Gentile could be is... is, is um, could identify as a Jew by, by embracing those, those tenets of the Jewish faith. But Paul's saying, even then, you're second rate. Why? Because I'm the real thing of the tribe of Benjamin. What's significant about the tribe of Benjamin? Benjamin is the tribe that came from Joseph's favored son. In fact, the only one of Joseph's sons actually born in the promised land. It's the favored tribe out of Deuteronomy 33, it's, it's the tribe where King Saul comes from. Possibly, maybe that's the reason Paul's Hebrew name was Saul. Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, David's city, was in the territory of Benjamin. And when all of the other tribes, when, when the kingdom of Israel split and the other tribes rejected the Davidic king, only one stayed loyal, Benjamin. He says, I'm not just of the ethnic people, the Jewish people. I am of the tribe of Benjamin, the favored tribe, a Hebrew of Hebrews. What, is, what does that mean? He's saying, unlike some, when the Greek culture came in and in the process of Hellenization began to take place, and some Jews said, you know what? We need, to, we need to do everything in the Greek language, and we should adopt those Greek customs, and we should, we should send our kids to the gymnasium, and we should... 
He said, I'm not one of those. I'm one of those who said, no, over my dead body will I engage and defile myself in any way. There's a deep divide between true Hebrews and Hellenistic Hebrews, those who embraced the Greek culture and those who said, hey, that's great. I'll learn how to talk to people in Greek, but I will not defile the commands of my Lord. He says, I am one of those he says, look at my status, my status based on my, my birthright, based on the things that I've had. My status is such that no one can compete with it. Not only that, but look at my achievements. He says, as to the law in relation to the law, he said, I'm a Pharisee. I'm of that group that, that is so passionate about keeping the law that we've, we've come up with hundreds of oral commands on top of the law to keep us from coming close to breaking the law. There's no one more passionate about the law. Remember what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, even though he blasts the Pharisees, he says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you cannot know the Lord. As to zeal as to my passion, how passionate am I to the law? My passion is so great that I, I inflicted suffering upon the church. Of course, if you know the story of Paul, you know that when they stoned Stephen, the first Christian martyr, where did they lay their coats? At the feet of Saul. What did Saul do after that? He began to get legal, legal documentation and to go after those who claimed Jesus as the Lord. He began to persecute them relentlessly. He says, you want to talk about passion and zeal? Has your zeal driven you to wage a war on the church like mine? He says, you want to talk about righteousness. Now, when he uses the term righteousness here, he's not trying to, to, to say, you want to talk about right standing before God. He's saying, you want to talk about whether or not you have followed the commands of the law. You want to talk about, which would include, by the way, the law would say you're a sinner and you need to do these sacrifices this way and this time. He's saying, you want to talk about the commands of the law from every way you can observe my life from the outside. There is no blame. I've done it. He said, I have a status you'll never have, and I have achieved more under the law than anyone could ever dream. And we know from Paul's testimony in, in various parts of the book of Acts and in the book of Galatians, he talks about that he was up and coming. He was beyond skilled for his age. He was rising. He was shooting like a rocket to the top of the religious power and influence that he could have in all of the nation of Israel until that moment on the Damascus Road when the light shone and blinded his eyes and he heard the voice of the Lord, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And, and look what happens when that moment comes. Look at verse 7. He says, look, these statuses, these achievements, all that I've accomplished, whatever things were gained to me, all these various things brought advantage and gain and, 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 and lifted me up in society, whatever things were gained, I have counted as loss. I have taken my thoughts and I have led them to reason a certain way. In light of the fuller knowledge I now have, I count these things not as some are better than others. They are all lost. They are all a disadvantage for the sake of Christ. Even beyond that, I don't just count those things as lost. No, I am counting all things as loss in view of the surpassing value, the surpassing greatness, the overwhelming glory of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He says, for the sake of Christ, I don't just see these statuses and achievements as loss. 
Every possible thing that I could ever boast in or place my confidence in other than Jesus, it is all a loss when I compare it to the overwhelming glory of knowing him. Not of knowing about him, not knowing part of him, but knowing him personally, relationally, deeply, truly, knowing Christ. And not just Christ, but Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And I now, I am counting them. There's that word again. I am not feeling my way this way, but I am thinking. I am using my mind by the power of the Spirit, and I am counting them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. That word rubbish, it's the word that when I taught this passage for the first time as a youth pastor, for years, the word I taught them was all of a sudden now the word we used every time we went to camp in a dodgeball team and a basketball team, and I regretted ever teaching it to them. But that word is significant. That word is a word, comes from the, the, the root words scubala. And it's not a word you would have used at the dinner table in the first century. It's a word that means something which is useless and undesirable, something you throw in the trash. It referred to things like a half-eaten corpse, filth, lumps of manure, animal dung, human excrement, scraps of things left on the table thrown away. It refers to absolute filth and disgusting. And he says, I am counting anything I could put confidence other than Christ. It is filth. so that I may gain Christ. What does it mean to gain Christ? That I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, which is derived from the law, but that which comes through the faithfulness of Christ, the righteousness which is from God on the basis of faith. He says, I count everything as, as rubbish so that I may gain Christ, so that I may take Christ, that I may be found in Jesus having a righteousness, a right standing with God that is not based on the law, that is not based on my works. Why? Because there is no amount of works done by a broken human that can ever achieve righteousness with God. He says, no, I want that righteousness which comes as a result of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ who came, who lived, who lived the life and achieved the, the law, the, the perfection of the law that you and I never could, who in that life died, who died the death you and I deserve, who rose from the grave conquering sin and death, who is exalted at the right hand of God according to Philippians chapter 2. He says, I want the righteousness that comes as a result of the person and work of Jesus, the righteousness which is God's righteousness, which is received in our lives through faith. He says, I want that righteousness so that I may know him. Why do I want that righteousness? Why do I not want the righteousness that comes through the law? I want the righteousness that comes through Christ from God in faith. I want that righteousness because I want to know Jesus. 
I want to know Jesus. And what does knowing Jesus looks like? It looks like knowing the power of his resurrection, the power of God which brought his resurrection in the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed by his holy hand to his death in order that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He says, I want this righteousness. And we use this word righteousness, church family. It means essentially, the simplest way I can put it, right standing. Used in this context, right standing. It means that I am in right standing with God. Right standing where I am able to have a relationship with God. And, and you may ask, well, well, wait a minute. Doesn't Paul have this in salvation? Yes, he has it in salvation. Is he, and he's, but he's writing to a group of believers because what you and I have in salvation is not supposed to be forgotten, but is supposed to be the basis of how we live out that salvation. Amen. And understand, I, I, I won't call any volunteers to come up on stage, but if I called a volunteer to come up on stage and I, I asked that volunteer, we'll call, we'll call uh, the volunteer John Doe, if I asked John Doe to pretend to be a, a dead person, just imagine a body right here laying, pretend to be dead. Now I want you to imagine right here there being a table. And at this table, God himself sits. And to be seated at this table is to be in a right relationship, a right standing with God. You have to be in a right standing to have a seat at the table. And to be seated at the table means I, I see God and I talk to God and, and he sees me and he talks to me and there's a relationship and it's not just any old relationship, but because I am seated at the table, I am family. The problem is when you and I are born into this world, according to scripture, we're dead and our trespasses and sins. Now imagine this dead person. If I said to this dead person, I said, okay, I want you to be dead. Now as a dead person, get to that table. Well, if they're doing a good job playing dead, nothing will happen. Now imagine if I come to that dead person and say, okay, dead person, let's, let's get you into church every week, week in and week out. Guess what'll happen? The dead person will hear a lot of sermons, but they're still lying on the floor dead in their trespasses and sins. Suppose I say, hey, dead person, let's go get some water and we're going we're gonna to baptize you. Guess what? Now the dead person's soaking wet, but still dead in their trespasses and sins. There is no work, however noble, however good, however right, however even godly, that can make a dead person anything other than dead. The only way this dead person gets to the table when the Holy Spirit comes to this dead person and begins to convict them, the reason they're dead is because of their own trespass and sin. And when this dead person begins to hear the message of the gospel that this trespass and sin, which has and is and, and will kill them, God himself stepped down out of heaven and became it on the cross. And that if this dead person will simply rest their faith not on their own work, but on this offer that God is holding out in grace, what's going to happen is that Jesus will break those chains. 
that the Holy Spirit will enter that body, that that person will come to life, that the Spirit will pick that person up, seal that person so they can't ever go back, and all of a sudden that person will come and will sit at the table with God in fellowship as a son or daughter. But here's the key. The reason that person sits at the table once they're at the table it's not because Jesus came and released them and now they get up and they're, they're sitting at the table on their own effort. No, because there is nothing that you and I can do deserving to be at that table. The reason we can sit at that table is because the chair we sit in is Jesus himself. It is his person. It is his work. It is his righteousness. Our righteousness, even freed from that, is still not good enough. We've got to be freed and made righteous in Christ. The reason we can sit at the table and experience this relationship with God is because we are completely and totally seated in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is what it means to place faith in Christ. It's resting the total weight of your being and mine on the reality which is true, though unseen. The tough part comes because you and I seated at this table sometimes are tempted to forget that the only reason we are there is his righteousness. And for a variety of reasons, we began to attempt, I don't know that I can do it here, we attempt to try to wall sit on our own. And I got news for you. It doesn't matter how good you think you are. It doesn't matter how long you can hold out. At some point, your righteousness gives out. And it's a deception to think that our relationship with God, we didn't get that relationship on the basis of our righteousness, and we don't continue in that relationship on the basis of our righteousness. And this is what Paul is addressing. He's saying, church and church family, he's saying, look, beware, beware those who would come and who would add to, who would say, you need Jesus plus fill in the blank for salvation, or in salvation, you need Jesus plus fill in the blank in order to walk with God and talk with God and know God and be confident with God. He's saying, beware of that, because there is no amount of a works-based, flesh-driven righteousness that has ever saved you or keeps you and maintains you in that relationship that will lead you into a full knowing of Christ, a knowing of Christ where you experience his power in your life, where you experience the fellowship of his sufferings, where God is conforming you into his image, which all culminates in the resurrection from the dead for us to spend all eternity with him and one another who are in Christ. So there's only one righteousness that takes you there. It's the righteousness that is through Christ, from God, by faith. So church family, understand today, we have to beware Paul is saying, finally, now we've arrived at this thing you've written me about. Not only does Paul write about it here, but the whole book of Galatians is addressing this issue. He brings it up in Romans. He brings it up in parts of Corinthians. For Paul, you, you might say one of the most, if not the most, passionate false truth he addresses 
are not so many of the sins that we will address, though he certainly addresses in his heart on them, but it's this idea that you and I as followers of Christ should somehow live on the basis of our own perceived righteousness and not live day in and day out on the basis of Christ's righteousness. You see, it's a danger. It's a temptation. We see it all around us. We see even inside of various church denominations where we say, yes, here's what you need to be saved. You need Jesus plus being baptized as an infant. You need Jesus plus being baptized in order to be saved. You need Jesus plus going to that church service in order to be saved. We see it inside of even those of us who are saved. You need Jesus plus perfection in order to have real intimacy with God. You need Jesus plus have your quiet time, pay your offering, go to, the, go to the worship service, attend Sunday school, make sure you check all five boxes off, the fifth one which I'm forgetting on your offering envelope, and then you will walk rightly with God. Legalism. Or it's Jesus plus, you know, I can have a certain relationship with God, but if, if I was born into that family with that spiritual legacy, man, the way that I would know God. We have tribalism or a nationalism or familyism, whatever you want to call it, Jesus plus in salvation. And this is why Paul is so concerned because understand, there is no salvation in any kind of Jesus plus whatever work of the flesh. You are not saved because you go to church. You cannot be saved by getting baptized. You are not saved because you were born into a Christian family. And for some of us in this room and some of us online, perhaps that's where we are. We go, wow, my relationship with Christ, I am confident. I know that I know Jesus because I was born into a Christian family and have gone to church all my life. And the most frightening passage in all of the Word of God to me is Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus says there's going to be a bunch of people on that day who say, Jesus, I was born in a Christian family. I went to church all my life. I went to Awanas. I memorized verses. I served. I did ministry. And Jesus says, depart from me. I do not know you. Because there is no work of fleshly righteousness that can ever save a man, woman, boy, or girl. There is none and if the reason you go, if you ask yourself the question, if, if, you were to, if the Lord were to look at you and say, why would I let you into my heaven? If your answer includes any work of yourself, I would highly encourage, please go back and make sure you really know that you know that you know. But it's not just in salvation. Understand, church family, Paul's passionate about this. I mean, he calls the people who teach these things dogs and workers of evil and mutilators, and he's not addressing a group of lost individuals. He's addressing a group like you and I, people who have said, hey, why, Lord, should you let me in? Because you took my place, Jesus, and I have trusted in you for my salvation. I am throwing myself on your mercy and grace. He's writing believers. Why is this so great in believers? Because church family understand that the righteousness with which we seek, the righteousness we seek to live in will be the righteousness from which we try to relate to God with. So let me go back to that question at the beginning. Are you confident? If right now you were to get alone with the Lord, would you feel confident in his presence? Or would you go, mm, I don't feel really confident. You know, I really, I only had a quiet time one day last week. 
I thought some really bad thoughts over here that day. This person really annoyed me and I wanted to punch him. This person annoyed me. I did punch them. <laughs> I mean, go on down the line and go, mm, you know what? I, I really, wow, look at all the, look at all the, look at all the red marks on my, my life this week. That means, mm, I, I better start, I better literally start on my knees and kind of grovel my way back to a good place of standing. Listen, we laugh and we joke, but so many of us think that. So many of us think, well, I know God hears my prayers because I feel really good about how I'm walking with him right now. You know why God hears your prayer or my prayer as a child of God? It doesn't have a thing to do with how you and I are walking. It has everything to do with the fact that Jesus walked perfect, and if we're in him, he hears our prayer. And there, there will not be a confidence to seek the Lord. He, Jesus says to come running into his throne room with boldness and confidence. You and I will not run to Christ with boldness and confidence and find grace and mercy in time of need if we are looking to our own righteousness for our confidence before God. Because the righteousness that we seek to live from is the righteousness from which we will relate to him. And not only that, but, but closely tied to it, the righteousness we seek to live from will be the righteousness from which we pull strength to follow him, to say yes to him and no to sin and temptation. Same passage, why do you come boldly and confidently? To find grace and mercy in time of need. Context being talking about Jesus who has faced every temptation as you and I yet was without sin. You see, I fear church family, the reason so many of us know the right answer about Jesus, but can't seem to find that power of God in our life to say no to that sin and temptation. The reason we seem to fall in a hopeless spire of constantly hitting that temptation and falling and falling and falling is because somewhere in our relationship with God, our faith is in our ability to follow the command and has moved away from remembering the only reason I am at the table is Christ. So let me just, let me just sit with even firmer faith and relax in him because my only hope for strength and power is his righteousness. I realized this years ago working with some students and they were struggling with pornography and, and I sat there and, and talked with them and you know, we, we had this simple conversation. Well, you know, do, you, does your, do your parents know? Well, you need to have your family on board with you. Do, do you have, do you know, let's, let's put your devices in another room. Let's install, uh, let's install uh, software on your computer Let's make sure you've got accountability. And listen, there's not a one of those four things I named that are bad things, that are ungodly things. Those are all good things. But if you think because you have the presence of those four things in your life, you're going to be able to withstand the temptation to porn, you've already set yourself up for failure. Not a one of those things provide the strength to say no. The strength to know is Christ. You know what those are? Those are Ottomans. Those are Ottomans. Those are things that you can use. Those are, those are things that God can use in your life to help further you just lean back in the chair of Christ. But should all of a sudden all those things disappear and the Ottoman removed, guess what? You're still not crashing to the ground because you're firmly seated in the chair. But if you pull that chair out and you start thinking those Ottomans are gonna keep you and you forget that your relationship, your power, your strength is in the righteousness of Christ and you pull that chair out, I got news where you're going. Gravity is a, a no respecter of persons. You're crashing to the ground. This is why Paul is so passionate about it. We've got to beware because there's a real temptation to fall into works-based righteousness. Church, family, everything we do in this world is works-based. 
You want to get a promotion? Work hard. You want to go to the gym and get in shape? Work hard. Right? Everything we are used to seems to come down to some level of work. Yet with Christ, it is not so. His righteousness does not come as a result of work, but as a result of grace. There's a temptation to move towards works because, frankly, there is a much deeper gratification for our own flesh in works. Which is why when you and I walk down and begin to relate to God on the basis of our unrighteousness, rather than producing the love that should drive our affection for God, it produces fear. I'm afraid of God because I know at some point I can't measure up. And if I can't measure up, will he toss me out? Will he, will he throw me off the table? Will he just choose to not pay attention to me? No, actually, you know what? When you and I sit at that table and you and I get distracted by sin that calls to our names outside the window and we look, the Lord lovingly convicts our hearts and we respond not to condemnation, which makes it all about me and says, woe is me, you're so terrible, you so stink, and leads us to self-pity. But when that conviction says, wow, this hurts the heart of my God and my Lord. And when we turn back to see the eyes of God, we discover he's in the same place he's always been. Amen. And our place at the table is not in danger. Instead, being led towards pride and self-pity, we humble ourselves to come to faith, to come back and remember our faith is in Christ. So church family, how do you and I know? How do we know if we're resting in the righteousness of Christ versus resting in our own? Let me just ask the question again. Where are you looking for confidence in his presence? Is your confidence in a moment when we go to the invitation and you pray, is your confidence in however well you have or haven't followed him this week, or is your confidence in who he says he is? If your confidence is who he says he is, then you may be convicted about how well or not well you followed him this week, and you can deal with that with the Lord, and you can discover his grace and mercy in the same place you've always found it. But you can be confident to come in. Where are you looking for your assurance in your relationship with, with Christ? Is your assurance there when you're walking well, but when things are tough and you're not walking well, it's not there? That would be a sign you're looking to live in your own righteousness. Where do you look for strength against temptation? Where do you look for encouragement from life? What is your view of God when times are hard and dry? All of the answers to these questions will, will show whether or not we're leaning on trying to be perfect or walking in our own strength or walking in our own righteousness versus whether or not we are living in the righteousness of Christ. Because if this passage says at first that we're to beware, the second thing it tells us, it says we got to be hungry. Look at Paul's heart. Do you see it all throughout the text? I want this righteousness. Beware of teachings that would take you this way. Beware of that mindset that says, if you have a quiet time seven days a week, God will really enjoy meeting with you, but if stuff's really hard and you don't have a quiet time for a week, God won't meet with you. False. Yes, God would much rather us spend time alone with him as his habit. Absolutely. We can please or not please him, but pleasing or not pleasing him does not determine the basis of the relationship if we're in him. Instead, we're to hunger. We're to hunger for his righteousness. And Paul gives us the tools to do it. What does he say at the very beginning? He says, rejoice. You want to hunger for his righteousness? Then rejoice in Christ. Take the eyes off of ourselves. Take the eyes off of our work. And 
look at him in wonder and awe, contemplate who he is and what he's done, and, and, and all of a sudden take joy, regardless of circumstance, from that reality. That's what rejoicing is. If we're rejoicing in Christ, we will be resting in Christ. If we choose, like he says, we have the true circumcision who do not put confidence in the flesh, but glory in Christ Jesus. If we are actively boasting in Christ, I am weak, but he is strong. I can't handle this, but he can lead me through. If we seek to worship and serve God, not by our own effort, but by seeking to walk in and by the Spirit of God, listening to his leadings, yielding to his word, all of these are ways in which, what does it look like to hunger after his righteousness? It's going to look like setting my eyes in faith on him and in the truth of the gospel, and it's going to manifest itself in rejoicing in the Lord, boasting in Christ, serving in the Spirit, all for the purpose of knowing him, of knowing him. And I got news for you, church family. There's a lot to unpack in this passage, which is why we're not doing it all today. We're going to come back next week and really pick up here. What does it look like to know him, to, to be able to say that all things are rubbish in view of knowing him, but, but we can't get to that point if we don't understand, church family, that the only way in which we know him and the only way in which we walk with him is not by our righteousness, but is by his And there is a real and true danger to base our relationship with Christ solely off of how well we are or are not doing instead of letting how well we are or are not doing be a result of resting in Christ's righteousness. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I know by default in today's message I didn't necessarily give all of us four things to go do. But all of us need to pause, Lord. I think of how many times do I sit down to meet with you and I, I feel, feel like I don't belong, not because I realize in humility the overwhelming glory of who you are, but because for some reason there's some aspect of me that I don't think measures up. Or how many times, Lord, does a situation come up where you very clearly in your word say, pray, ask. Ask for wisdom and I will give. Yet, yet there's a, a tendency to pause, to delay asking, to delay that seeking because, well, if I, if I don't pray hard enough, if I don't do it well enough, if I don't, Lord, there's so many ways all of us can fall into a works-based righteousness. But Lord, works didn't save us from death. Not our works. Jesus, your work brought life to us. Your person brought life to us. And Jesus, that same righteousness which saves us is the same righteousness we will spend now and all eternity glorying in, resting in, is the righteousness that we must walk in and live in, God, so that we actually know you. God, for many of us in this room, the reason our relationship with you seems far more distant and like a, a game of biblical trivial pursuit is because we walk in our own righteousness rather than yours.
So Father, you convict our hearts how we need to be convicted, encourage our hearts how we need to be encouraged. But may we respond to you with the hope and joy Lord, though we can't, you can, you have, you will. May we rest and boast in your righteousness, Lord. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.